Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> the book of Revelation. The revelation of John, which he was given by Jesus Christ and angels. The last book in our Bible, the 66th book in the Bible. And as you have your notebooks, you can just record comments as we go. I have an outline, but you may just want to write on page one, chapter one, and then verse one, and comments under each verse. That may be the simplest way to do it. And to start off, you're going to want to write the word introduction. Many godly men did not count the book of Revelation as inspired. Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, the reformer, was challenged by the Anabaptists because he persecuted the Baptists. And when Ulrich Zwingli was challenged, they said, we think you are the beast from Revelation because you are persecuting the Christians. And Zwingli said, well, that's no problem. Because I don't believe that Revelation is in the canon of the Bible. A few years earlier, Martin Luther in 1522 wrote a preface to the book of Revelation. In which he said, it does not appear that Revelation is inspired. Thankfully, eight years later, Martin Luther changed his mind. And said, I was wrong. Revelation is in the Bible. I hope to finish studying this book, and when we get done, I hope the strongest proof that Revelation is written by the Holy Spirit, the strongest proof will be in your heart, and this is what it is. Not the ancient church fathers, Irenaeus and Justin, both said it was written by John and in the Bible, which they did. Origen said it's in the Bible, which he did. I hope what you will say at the end of this night and the end of this course, you will say, I know Revelation is in the Bible because it has powerfully made my heart love Jesus Christ. That might be the greatest proof that Revelation is written not by men, not merely by men, but by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. Revelation has 404 chapters, 9,851 verses. I'm sorry, words. What am I saying? It has 22 chapters, 404 verses, 9,851 words. That means it has more words than any of the other epistles. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Did you know that Paul's epistles are listed in order of length in general. Romans is the longest, then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, then Ephesians, then Philippians, then Colossians, up until we get to 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy is not the shortest, but it's in a category by itself. <clears throat> but longer than all of those epistles, longer than the book of Hebrews, is the book of Revelation at 9,851 words. What is the message of this book? Now, I wrote an outline going through the entire book. 
But in May this last year, I preached one sermon going through the entire book. You can find it at gracebible.org.za and you can listen to it. So let's just pretend we've already done that and let's start right in verse number one. Open your Bibles to Revelation 1 and verse 1. And I do have an outline, but I think more helpful than an outline. We'll just be almost going word by word. Tonight we're going to go slowly through chapter 1. Some of the times we'll go more quickly and we may handle two or even three or four chapters in a single night. Tonight we will try to get through all of chapter 1, but we might not be able. There is so much important teaching In this first chapter, and even in these first seven verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Pause right there. The word revelation is apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word that simply means revelation or revealing. Now, scholars have decided that there is a kind of literature called apocalyptic. I'll write it on the board for you. A-pa-ka-li-tic. And that comes from apocalypse, which simply means reveal or revelation. And what they'll say is there's a certain kind of, of literature called apocalyptic. They'll put in this the book of Daniel. They'll say Daniel is apocalyptic. They'll put in this the book from the Apocrypha called Esdras, and other books like that. And what they'll say is, an apocalyptic book is a book that has visions and revelations about the future using symbols. So here we go, let's get that definition. Visions, revelations about the future with symbols. But, I'm not so sure that's helpful. I'm telling you it's there so that you'll you'll understand the, the way people have classified this book. But here's the danger with classifying Revelation as an apocalyptic book. When people begin to talk about apocalyptic literature, what they commonly mean is literature where the words are so far connected from reality that you really can't make sense of them except for a very broad principle. Did you follow that? Let me tell you again. What people commonly mean when they say the word apocalyptic, this is what they commonly mean. The words are so far from reality that they basically don't mean anything. Except for... Just a very general principle like this. Good wins. Some people following this idea of the apocalyptic literature may even say, that's the whole point of Revelation. Good wins. Well, I don't think so. And I'd like to argue differently tonight. The point of Revelation is not only or merely good wins. Let's see if we can find a marker that works here. 
If the point of revelation is good wins, that's a fairly basic argument. What do you need 404 verses for? What do you need those symbols for? Or words, maybe they aren't symbols. What do you need all of those amazing statements for? What's really the point of studying it? If that's the point of the book, if that's all there is, good wins. Well, I'm not doubting that. I'm not saying that's false. I'm saying if that's all there is, it's like you coming hungry to the dinner table and then putting in front of you three pieces of bread. You say, but I was looking for shishebo. I was thinking some spinach. I was also hoping for nyama. I was hoping maybe for some cold drink as well and rice and salad. I was actually hoping for a meal. I've been working all day and they say, there's three pieces of bread. That, that's, not, that's not false, but it's not, that's not going to stir you to read the book of Revelation. So when we see the word revelation, which is apocalypse, realize that the word apocalypse simply means revelation, but that sometimes people have taken that word and scholarized it into apocalyptic, which means it's so unusual and different that it basically means nothing. We will not take that approach in this class as we attempt to go through this book. The revelation of who? Does that mean the revelation about Jesus or the revelation that he gave? It means the revelation he gave, but maybe you would pause right there and say, well, maybe it means the revelation about him. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, It means the revelation about him, not merely the revelation that he gave. For example, as we're going to read right now, you're going to see a number of things are given by angels. A number of things. John's by himself. At one point, he's even at the last chapter or uh, in chapter 19, he's actually going to fall down in front of an angel. And the angel's going to say, don't fall down here. He's talking with an angel. This is a revelation about Jesus, not merely one that he gave. How do I know that? We read the whole book. If you read the whole book, you will see many things that are not words coming from Jesus. Yes, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have a lot that Jesus gives himself. But what about chapters 4? And 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10, and 11, and 12. It's now discussions about what Jesus is doing, not necessarily words that he is speaking to John. This is a revelation about Jesus, which gives us the theme of the book. The theme of the book is not merely good wins. That's not merely the theme. Let's go a little deeper. The theme of the book is going to be the glory of Christ. With four more words added to the end. That's the theme of the book. And we know from the very first line, because what's coming up is a revelation of what? Of Jesus. This is going to be a revelation concerning or explaining Jesus Christ. Look down into your heart right now. 
Do you have a strong desire to learn what is revealed about him? To know what is revealed? Do you have this interest, this tickle, this pull, this hunger, this magnetism? Do you have some voice inside you saying, yes, yes, go on. I want this. I need to get this. If you have that, that is one of the marks of a true Christian. Are you in Revelation? Go back just a few pages to 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. Uh, Mugobe, can you please read that? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wow. Who is Peter talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, but who is this? Um, you love him, even though you have not seen him. You, you, you have not seen him. You are rejoicing. Who's this you? Well, just look up to chapter 1, verse 1. Those who are elected. Are you elect? Then go down to verse 8. What's one of the proofs that you are elect? You believe in Jesus. What is it? You have this love for Jesus. If you don't have an overwhelming love for Jesus... You're not elect. You're not a Christian. Or perhaps you are elect and you've not been born again yet. But one of the ways we know that you are one of his children, that he chose you before the foundation of the world, is that right now you are pulled to Christ. If there's no pull toward Jesus, you don't have the kind of faith that he gives to his people. And let's just... Because we're here in Peter, let's just clarify one more thing. You're here in 1 Peter, and you've seen he's writing to the elect. And in verse 8, he says, even though you have not seen him, what do you do? And even though someday you will see him, but right now you're rejoicing with joy inexpressible. You can't even, you can't even put it into words. What are you so happy about? Why are you singing, Paul and Silas, in the prison after they've beaten you and your feet are tied in the boards and you can't lay down and you can't bend over and your back is sore and painful and all your muscles are in knots and it's midnight and you're singing. I have a joy I can't put into words. Now, take that and go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And see and be comforted by one of the amazing statements. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those 
Do you see the word those or them? What kind of people are these people? They are people who have done what? Obtained something. What have these people obtained? A faith. But then it's a certain kind of faith. So these people are a certain kind of people because they've obtained something. That word obtained means given. They were given something. They didn't get it themselves. They had to stand in the line and the man gave it to them. Here, they they were given this thing. What were they given? They were given a faith. What kind of faith? Precious. Precious, keep going. What kind of faith? Like precious faith with us. A faith that is precious. How does it say in the ESV? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. A faith of equal standing with ours? Who's the our? Who's us? It's Peter and the apostles. If you are a Christian, you have been given a faith That is the same as Peter and Paul. When the charismatics today say, well, if you have faith, if you don't have a faith like Paul, you're not even a Christian. If you are a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world. How would you know that? Oh, you will love Jesus with joy that you can't even put into words. And... How will you get that love? Through faith. Where do you get the faith from? It's given to you. The faith has to be given to you. And it's a faith exactly the same quality as the faith that helped Peter walk on the water. It's exactly the same quality as the faith that made Paul stand up after he was stoned. That made him walk the distance from Cape Town almost to Cairo, Egypt. To evangelize sinners on the missionary journeys. Can you imagine what kind of faith would make you walk from South Africa to Egypt? (laughs) If you are a Christian, you have the faith the same as him. And if you say, well, I don't think I've quite got it. Then you don't have Christianity. Now go back to Revelation. Because that's what's being talked about here. The revelation about Christ, that which is to inspire, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. What? Things which must soon come to pass? Does your Bible say the word soon? Yes. Circle that word. Shortly or soon or quickly. Go down to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is what? The time is near. Okay, we know it's soon and we know the time is near. Look over at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. What's the time word in chapter 3, verse 11? I'm coming soon. Go to chapter 22, verse 10. 
And by the way, you're going to want to write all of these references down. Put in your Bibles the word soon or quickly. And then put every one of these references. Or you can just write it right in your Bibles. Don't forget these. This is a vital chain that I'm going to give for you here. We're at chapter 22 and verse 10. 22, 10. Where's the word for quickly in 22.10? The time is near. 22 verse 7. What's the time word in verse 7? 22.7. I'm coming soon. 22.12. What's the time word in verse 12? I'm coming soon. 22. 20. What's the time word in 2220? Quickly. Quickly or soon. So did you get all those? I'll give you those references again. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 22. 3, verse 11. 22, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20. And then chapter 12, verse 12, it says, the devil's time is short. So you might be able to include that in there as well. It doesn't say Jesus is coming soon. It says the devil's time is short, which that might be in the same category. Wait a minute. How can this be that he's coming soon? How long has it been since he's come? When did John write this? How many hundreds of years ago? Uh, 1,900 years ago. And yet, have you seen Jesus? How can you write the word soon? Let me give you three answers to that question. And these are going to open up very big theological discussions for us. Number one, you can put down there if you want, three views on soon. Quote, soon, close quote. Number one, soon means 70 AD. And you'll just put up there, number one, soon means 70 AD. Now you need, to, you need to start thinking historically. Can you see the words up there? Number one, soon means 70 AD. Or number two, soon soon means any time. That's the second interpretation. Number three. Soon means soon in God's eyes. In God's eyes. 
Now let's explain these for just a moment. Soon means 70 AD. We believe this book was written about 90 AD. About 90. Jesus died when? Does anyone know what year Jesus died? 30 AD. Some people say 33. We're not sure. Let's estimate 30 AD. For hundreds of years, uh, scholars believe it was 30 AD. 30 years after they thought he was born. And then if, if this is true, then he was probably born in 4 BC. He was killed in 30 AD. So about 60 years later, the book of Revelation was written. But there are some people who say, no, the book of Revelation was written in this view. Number one, they say Revelation was written when? 68 AD, just before 70 AD. Now, if I write a book to you and say, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. And then I come in 2023. Maybe that was soon. You follow that? So the people who hold the view number one say, no, 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 no. John didn't write in 90 AD when he was a 90-year-old man. No, John wasn't 90 years old. He was only 68 years old. And at that time he wrote, and he said Jesus is coming soon because all of the verses about Jesus coming, or most, Almost all of the verses about Jesus coming are pictures. Apocalyptic. They're they're just pictures. They're they're pictures of how Jesus came back spiritually in 70 AD. Do you know what happened in 70 AD? Here's what happened. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came against Jerusalem and he put his armies up all around Jerusalem and he said, open the gates and they would not open. And he besieged that city until finally he broke through their gates and destroyed the city from top to bottom. It was a devastating destruction. It was talked about all over the world for a long time. There are books written about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So if you hold to view number one, you say what Jesus was talking about was that Jesus came in destruction and terror and judgment. I'm not asking you to agree with this view. I'm asking you to understand it. Are you with me? So when they hear the word soon, they say, oh, John wrote this when he was 68 years old and a year or 18 months later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the whole book of Revelation or 80% or so of or 90% of Revelation is discussing what? So they would say 90% of Revelation is talking about what? So when you read about scorpions, it's a picture of? And when you read about demons, it's a picture of? And when you read about stars falling from the earth, it's a picture of? And when you read about the waters turning bitter, it's a picture of? 
When you read about people drinking blood, it's a picture of? Ev- almost everything in Revelation is a picture of? 70 AD. Now, was 70 AD a real massacre in history? Yes. Was it terrible? Yes. Did God send it as a judgment on Israel? Yes. Is it the meaning of the entire book of Revelation? I'm, let, let's just try to open the passage here in a little bit and see. But view number one says the word soon means 70 AD. Now, you can see the benefit of this. Because if I tell you soon is 2,000 years, does that sound like the word soon to you? If I say faith, faith, just now, no, 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 no. I'll give you a thousand rand. And I wait until you die. Do, do we call that soon? No. So the benefit of view number one, view number one is sitting here saying, I've got the word soon and quickly and near. I've got those words and they grab on it. How many words are there? Seven of them. Chapter one, verse one, chapter one, verse four, chapter 22, verse seven, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 11, they grab those words and say, see, soon, soon, it says soon. And they grab those words and hang on to it. Are you with me? View number two. View number two says soon means anytime. So to John, when, when this revelation came, it meant maybe before he dies. It means maybe you before you die. It means maybe the people 500 years ago. Maybe, maybe right now, maybe tonight. That's view number two. Now, is it true that Jesus could come at any time? Is that true? Could he come tonight? That's view number two. View number two, the strength of view number two is this. It's true. It's true. It's simply an accurate view. But here's the problem with that. Does the word soon mean at any moment? Not not quite. You see, the other English word we use is the word imminent. Write this in your notes. Imminent. The other English word is the word imminent. Imminent simply means at any time. So the word soon means not at any time, but it means in a small amount of time. And view number one, when view number one looks at view number two, they say, soon does not mean at any time. Soon means what? In a short time. Now, let's put up here on the, on the board. And you, you tell me uh, how, how close these are. Where's my eraser? Let's look at the definition of the word soon. Soon and imminent. And if imminent means this, if this is the meaning range, what we call the semantic range from this border on the left 
to this border on the right, and this line in the middle indicates the meaning of the word imminent. Does the word soon, does it fit here exactly the same as imminent? Or does the word soon mean more than imminent? Or does the word soon mean less than imminent? Or does the word soon mean half and half? Something like this. Some of soon overlaps with imminent. Do you see that? If you're listening to this, we're simply drawing uh, two lines on the board and having them either the exact same or one a little bit shorter, one a little bit longer, or having them half overlap. Soon and imminent half overlap. View number two, look what they do. This is view number two. Watch, there, there's view number two, and it runs up here to this definition, and this, this overlap, view number two grabs this overlap and hangs on as if it's going to fall to its death. And view number two is going to grab that overlap and say, they overlap a little bit. Now, is it true that they overlap? Yes. yes. Both words have to do with time. Both words have something to do with time. Both words tend to mean unexpected. But imminent means at any time, it has the any idea. That's the part that's over here. Look, look, this part out here of imminent, see that? This is the any idea. And any is not necessarily inside soon. And this over here, this is the idea of little. And this little is not necessarily inside the idea of, of time, of imminent. So we've, here's our problem is that soon has a little part that's not inside imminent. And any has a little part, imminent has a little part, any, that's not inside soon. So you can guess that I don't hold to view number two. Although there is some merit and many good and godly men hold to view number two. I hold to view number three. Soon means soon in God's eyes. <coughs> we were just at Peter. Who was with Peter when he healed the lame man at the gate beautiful? John. Who was with Peter when he went to prison? John. They were, they were close. Let's let Peter help us understand John. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, just a few pages away. 2 Peter 3. And verse 8. Beloved, do not be ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is like what? Now, this is a very important passage of Scripture. It does not say that God is so big that all of time is just a few days to Him. Because it also says that, a, that one day is like... It says a thousand years is like a day, and then a day is like... So it goes both ways. What that teaches is not merely that God is so much bigger than time... It teaches that God is actually outside of time. Time is what we call 
the measurement where one event follows another. Does God live inside of one event following another? Or let me say it this way. Is God contained inside one event following another? Absolutely not. God is outside of time. God made time. God made the sun going, uh, the earth going around the sun. God made time, one second following another. God made you to have one event and then the next. But to him, there is no such thing in his own being and essence. That's what 1 Peter 3 and verse 8 is teaching us. But then look down here in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come like what? What does that teach us? That teaches us what? Imminent, any time. So that idea of any time is taught in the Bible. And it's taught in Luke chapter 12. And Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24. The idea of any time is taught in the Bible. I'm just questioning if the word soon primarily teaches that. Soon does tell us that we need to be watching and ready. But that's not the only message. The message of soon is this, that God is transcendent and glorious. He is outside of time and he can be inside of time the same way he can be everywhere in the world at the same time. God can be, because he is omnipresent, Psalm 139 says, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and ascend up into heaven, even there you're with me and your right hand is upholding me. If God can be in heaven and in hell at the same time, if God can be with a sinner when he is sinning and also with a saint when he is serving God, if God is in heaven in a certain special way, but also here on earth, God does dwell in time, but he is also and specially outside of time. And the word soon means you and I need to accept God's perspective on history. God's perspective on history is this. When it's all over and we are in heaven, we will look back and think very small thoughts about this time on earth. How do we know? It might be one of the best cross-references for this position would be Isaiah 65, verse 20. Go back in your Bibles to Isaiah 65, verse 20. I'm sorry, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Sixty-five, seventeen, And notice what it says here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. What is God going to make? And when we get there, what will our attitude be to the old heaven and the old earth? And the former ones will not be remembered, nor will they do what? They won't even come into mind. 
When he says soon, he means I'm coming in a way that once you get into heaven, you'll look back and say, oh, that? That was just, that was just an introduction, just the beginning. That, that whole time on earth, that, that really was a, a small time. It's God's perspective. It's a divine understanding of human history. It's understanding what is your life. It is only a vapor, a mist, a smoke. The other Sunday morning we were studying Psalm 39 verse 4 and we saw what are are our lives like? The four biblical pictures. What is our life really like? Dust. Dust. Grass. Grass. Smoke. Now I'm forgetting the last one. Oh, a hand's breadth, the length of a hand. These are the pictures of ourselves in relation to time. And someday we'll see that the word soon was exactly right. Which means this, the word soon and the word quickly means we need to completely trust God and to serve God and to obey God because whatever amount of time we live on earth When we get to heaven, even if we live a hundred years, we're going to say, it was just a smoke. It was a flame. It was grass that comes up and passes away. It was dust. It was here today and gone tomorrow. It was a very small passing thing. Go back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And we see here that this is, what, this is what John means when he says, I will come short, or these things must happen shortly. Notice in verse 1, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. The word angel or angels is found 74 times in the book of Revelation. It's one of the most repeated words. It's used once every five and a half verses. In fact, Revelation is less than 2% of all the Bible's words. But Revelation has 25% of all the uses of the word angel. No book talks about angels as much or as commonly as Revelation does. He sent by his angel to his servant John. And he bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and obey those things which are written in it because the time is near. Three things. You're blessed if you do three things. What are the three things? Read and Hear and keep or obey. If you do three things, you get a blessing. People like to walk around, oh, I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. God's blessed me. I know God blesses you if you read, listen, and obey Revelation. You will have a special blessing. You'll be unusual among all the people of the world. Read it, listen to it, and obey it. So we're here to claim that blessing. 
These coming months, I want you to go out in May and say, I am blessed. How are you blessed? Because you've gotten this one. The word blessed means happinesses. It's in the plural. Oh, many happinesses. Oh, happy that one who has these things. How so? We'll see as we go through the book. But the one who has this book in his heart is the one who is going to be specially drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this book has an attracting, drawing power to Jesus. I strongly encourage us to read and to study and to meditate. It's the only book of scripture that I know of that promises if you read this book and listen to it and obey it, there's a special blessing. Verse 4, John writing to the seven churches. He puts his name in there very clearly so you'll know who wrote it. And the liberals say, we're not sure who wrote it. Read verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. Who is that? The one who is and was and is to come. Jesus. Well, keep reading the verse. And from who? The seven spirits which are before his throne. Verse 5. And from who? Okay, wait a minute. It's from the one who is and was and is to come. It's from the seven spirits and it's from Jesus. Does that sound like the Trinity to you? The one who is and was and is to come is God the Father. The seven spirits are a word taken from Isaiah probably that have to do with the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 42, is it? Does your Bible have a cross reference there? I believe it's chapter 42. The seven spirits are from Isaiah. And in, in Isaiah, it describes the Holy Spirit as he who has these seven quality traits, seven character traits. That is probably what it means here, the Holy Spirit. So the Father, first of all, the Spirit, second of all. And why is the Son last? Because he's going to dwell on the Son. Usually it's Father, Son, and Spirit. This time it's Father, Spirit, and Son. Because for the rest of the book, he's going to dwell on the sun. And for right here in the opening, he's going to dwell on the sun. Notice verse 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who... And then there are six descriptions. If you have your pen, mark these down, either in your Bible or in your notes, so that you'll never forget these six descriptions. Verse 5. From Jesus Christ, what's the first description? The faithful witness. The faithful witness. By faithful witness, he means the one who cannot lie. He speaks according to reality. What he sees, he speaks. He hides nothing. There is no lie in him. This is similar to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why is it that you should never lie? Because Jesus Christ cannot lie. He is the faithful witness who cannot shade the truth at all. And we ought to speak the truth because he is like that. Notice the second thing. He is the first begotten of the dead. What does that mean? That means he is the leader 
of all those who will rise again in the resurrection. Yes, there were people who were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, like the widow's son when Elijah raised him from the dead. There are some in the Old Testament, a very few who were raised from the dead. But Jesus is the first because he is the one who said in John 10 verse 17, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I take it again. The widow's son, when he died, did not put down his life and then take it again on his own accord. The son, that boy in the Old Testament did not have power to kill himself and did not have power to bring himself back. Jesus had power to say, I'm going to live until this time and then you're going to kill me. And that's why he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Our Lord decided when his life would leave and our Lord decided when his life would come back into his body. Because though his body died, he himself as God never did die. And his living, glorious, divine personality came back into that body and stood up again. And that is the pattern for which all in the future will be raised from the dead. Those others who were raised did not receive glorified bodies. Jesus is the firstborn, that is the first one, to receive a new body. His glorious body is unparalleled in its beauty and splendor, as we'll see in the same chapter. When John sees the the glorified body of Jesus, he's going to fall down like a dead man. C.S. Lewis writes, if you could see now someone in their glorified body, you would be strongly tempted to worship him. Lewis is right, and he gets it from this. And he gets it from all the descriptions in the Bible of people who've been to the glorious land of heaven and then somehow were allowed for a moment back to earth. Can you remember when Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain in Matthew chapter 17 and they saw Jesus' body, uh, Jesus' uh, uh, glory shone and his robes were changed? All of them were so amazed they passed out. This is not a mild thing. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead in that he is the guarantee that all those in the future will one day get a body like his. And if you are still in your youth and you say, well, I'm strong, I'm handsome, I don't feel any weakness about this body. Don't be a fool. Walk by faith and not by sight. The body that will one day be given you following in the, in the glorious incorruptibility of Jesus Christ will so far surpass whatever you're at now, that you will wonder that you were ever pleased with your body now. Look at number three. He's not only the firstborn of the dead, but he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That word ruler is archon. It means first. But the firstborn from the dead also means first. It's proto. Proto for firstborn, archon for the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the first in all the category of people who come back from the dead. And he's the first in all the category of rulers, of kings. Later on, it's going to call him the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now, we've got three of the descriptions. And these three descriptions are different from the next three. Now, let's look at the next three. And then you tell me what the difference is between these. Look at verse number five. What's the next one after this? Unto him... Who did what? Loves us. Loves us. 
The word love is only found four times in the book of Revelation. Once, Jesus loves us. Twice, Jesus loves us. The next time, in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 14, it says, these Christians did not love their lives even to death. That's the third time the word love is used. The fourth time, God loves Jerusalem. So the first time, Jesus loves sinners. Second time, Jesus loves sinners. Fourth time, God loves people and Jesus loves people. That third one is unusual. It's a negative. Real Christians don't love their lives. They prefer to die than sin. Those are the only four references to the word agape or love in the book of Revelation of agape. Yes, there is a, an instance of love in Revelation 2. You've left your first love, but that's the noun and not the verb that we're talking about here. He loved us. What's the, what's the fourth, I'm sorry, the fifth description of our Lord? Released us from our sins. He released us, redeemed us. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. What's the sixth description of verse 6? He made us a kingdom. He made us a kingdom of priests. There's a textual variant here. One Greek text says kings, and the other says kingdom of. I think that kings is probably correct. Alpheus, does your Bible say kings and priests or kingdom of priests? Kingdom of priests? Kings and priests. These three final descriptions of our Lord. He loved us. He freed us. He made us. What's different between those three descriptions and the first three that you just saw? What's that? That's right. In the first three, we have descriptions of who is Christ. And in the second three, we have what? What he does. Who is he? What does he do? All Christology can be summarized under two headings. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. If you study the person and the work, you can put everything about Jesus in one of those two categories. And that's a biblical category from right here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Who is he? He is these three things. What does he do? He does these three things. Let's just notice briefly about the things that he does. What does it say that he does? He loves, he looses, and he makes. These are three things that he only does for a certain group of people. What group of people? Believers, the elect. Christians, this is a summary of all the gospel, all of Christ's saving activity. First of all, he loved us. That's election because he loved us before we loved him. First John 4, right? He loved him and therefore, I'm sorry, he loved us and therefore we love him. That's election. Before the world was formed, he said, I know they're sinful. I know they're dirty. I know they're backward and vile. But I'm going to set my love on them. That's election. Number two is redemption or atonement. He freed us from our sins. How so? 
How so? In what manner was his freeing? By blood. He paid blood to free us. And notice it even tells you what we're freed from. Is it poverty that we're freed from? Is it a lack of a good job or sickness? What is the thing that we are freed from? That's the message all through the Bible. Again, charismatics love to twist this and re-put the emphasis on physical, earthly comfort. That's not what Jesus does. His emphasis is on salvation. And what's the third thing that he does? He makes us kings and priests to God or a kingdom of priests. But I think probably the correct reading is he makes us kings and priests. That is, when we are born again, there is such a glorious transaction that happens in our soul. We are made into the family of God and given unusual spiritual blessings. And someday we'll see those in reality. That's where we get the idea of already and not yet. Already, right now, we have been made kings and priests. But it's not yet in its fullest. Someday when he comes back, he will reward his people and they will be kings and priests in actuality. In a fuller, richer, greater, deeper sense. Right now, we are kings and priests in a spiritual sense only. Look down at verse Oh, by the way, there's soli deo gloria. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's close with this. Yes, Caleb. Um, I'm just wondering, do you suppose that these, uh, he loves us, he released us from our sins, and he made us to be a kingdom, he made us to be a kingdom. Do you think that that could be the past, present, and future that he talked about uh, in verse 4? He is to, he is to, he was, and he, hmm. he is, and he is to come. Because verse 4 is election happened in the past. Verse 5 is redemption. He does it now. Hmm. Verse 6 will happen in the future. That's a good observation. Let me think more about that. That's a good, note, a good, good eye. In verse 7 it says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye will see him. And those also who pierced him, and all kinds of the, of the earth will wail because of him. My time is almost gone. Let me just quickly say on verse 7. If you see these three, view, uh, three views of the word soon, maybe you thought, maybe you thought to yourself, it doesn't, view number three doesn't sound very convincing, but you said that's your view. That's because I didn't get to all the arguments yet. Look in verse seven. It says he's coming with what? With the he's coming with what? With the clouds. If you believe in verse one, that he came in AD 70, you believe that Jesus, quote, came with clouds when he, all the dust that was kicked up behind the chariots as Rome and its soldiers came rushing toward Jerusalem. There are commentators that actually teach that the dust that was kicked up by those chariots were the clouds that Jesus came back in. Really? Is that what verse 7 sounds like to you? Keep going in verse 7. How many eyes will see him? How many kindreds of the earth will wail? All in 70 AD, did every eye see the Romans? No, it was basically right there in the Middle East. The people in Africa didn't. 
People in China had no, they knew nothing about this. The people in Europe knew nothing about this. The people in North America and South America, the people in the islands, they knew nothing about this. In fact, almost no one knew about Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, I gave you seven passages that say, soon, soon, 